God tells stories that make Sunday school teachers sweat and mothers write their children permission slips excusing them from encountering reality. Lions are fed. Every day, animal stories end in those jaws. Leviathans snorts fire. Unicorns won't plow. What good is a story without struggle? What good is a plot without danger? How is a character's metal tested? How is it made in the first place? Nails are forged for pounding. Man is born to trouble. Man is born for trouble. Man is born to battle trouble. Man is born for the fight, to be forged and molded under torch and hammer and chisel into a sharper, finer, stronger image of God. So writes Andy Wilson in his book, Death by Living, wherein he argues that we should live our lives to the fullest, to the dregs for others and for those around us. And in so doing, we will encounter troubles. We will make sacrifices. And this is precisely what we find Paul and Barnabas doing in Acts chapter 14 this morning. They are making personal sacrifices for the good of others as they take the good news of the gospel to new lands and new peoples. Indeed, in obedience to Jesus, they find themselves moving from one trouble to the next. Indeed, their journey has not been smooth sailing up to this point by any stretch of the imagination. But at this point, here in Acts chapter 14, it will begin to feel like a bull ride. And this shouldn't surprise us. After all, they are following Jesus. The perfect man who was born to trouble and sorrow and persecution. The man and master who told them, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so you see, Paul and Barnabas, in obedience to Jesus, follow him right into trouble. And that's kind of our main idea this morning, what I want you to walk away pondering this week as you hold on to that insert and re revisit this text, is that Jesus gets his disciples into trouble. I'm going to exhort you this morning, encourage you to be brave. Be brave when trouble comes. Continue looking to Christ. Be brave and proclaim Christ. Be brave in persevering in Christ. And you can see that there. We're going to cover these seven verses, and we're going to talk about proclamation, how Christ is shared boldly, and perseverance, the need to continue following Jesus in the midst of trouble and pain and loss. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word, for by it we come to know you. Faith comes through hearing and through the mysterious work of your Holy Spirit, who is given indelibly to those who call on you in faith. We thank you for adopting us into your family through Christ Jesus our Lord, 
We pray that you would make us a people who are brave and kind, who are willing to follow Jesus wherever he might lead us. Whether it be to the ends of the earth or to the ends of our driveway, make us a faithful people. Shape us by your word more and more into a sharper, finer, stronger image of yourself. God, help us to live the story of our lives unto your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So context here, we are in the book of Acts, and once more, we're going to summarize the whole book this way. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And as the church goes out, God brings people in. He gives them faith in Christ and eternal life. We see this play itself out. Jesus ascends to the throne from where he rules and reigns in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he pours out his Holy Spirit onto his church, and they begin to be his witnesses, as he said they would in verse 8 of chapter 1, in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so from chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 8, they are filling up Jerusalem with the aroma of Christ, with the smelling salts of the gospel, as they heal people and proclaim, Jesus is Lord, turn from your sins, be forgiven and have forever with God. And this ticks off the religious establishment and kind of culminates in this great opposition in chapter 7 as Stephen is stoned to death, just on the heels of him telling them, you fools, don't repeat the mistakes of your fathers and reject the Messiah. Don't reject God's word. Don't reject God's revelation. Don't reject Jesus. And they snarl and they throw stones and he dies in a pool of his own blood as he cries out, Father, forgive them. At which point we're introduced to Saul, who is on this particular missionary journey. And we learn that God is working in a really unique way. That even though the messenger is buried, the message of the gospel goes forward. And we find the, one of the major themes in Acts is in the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. The word of God keeps spreading. It keeps going. The gospel cannot be snuffed out. It cannot be extinguished. It's good news that cannot be censored or silenced. God takes it onward, forward, and for his glory. And so right away in chapter 8, we see this persecution results in people scattering out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The persecution leads to missionaries being spread everywhere. Because where the church goes, the gospel goes. And now we've seen that gospel spread all over the place. And in Acts chapter 13, where we were last week, we discovered the first church sending the first official like missionaries. Their missionaries sent out not as the result of persecution, but as the result of the word of God's Holy Spirit. They commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go and tell the nations about a Savior who had come and died for them so that they might live. And Paul, we found him in Pisidian Antioch preaching that sermon wherein he told everyone, history is all about God. It's not about you. It's all about the God who has loved you, gave himself for you, so that you might live. 
He invites them to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Warns them, just as Stephen did, not to reject the revelation of God. And yet that's not enough to keep them from scoffing. Yes, many come to the faith. The word of God spreads. We see that in verse 49 of chapter 13. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The word of God goes forth, but persecution comes also. More opposition, driving them onward to the next town. We leave Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Lest we get it wrong, we need to understand that by moving on, they are not moving out of trouble. They are moving into more trouble as they move on. This group in Pisidian Antioch is not going to give up their pursuit of Paul and Barnabas until they stone Bar- sorry, Paul, until they stone Paul towards the end of chapter 14. They're going to catch up to him. They're running from one danger and running into the next danger. They move out of the frying pan and into the fire. And this is what we read, verse 1 of chapter 14. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe. Lystra and Derby are like backwoods towns. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says if, if a character were to be a town, like if you're familiar with cars, uh, the character Mater would be associated with Lystra and Derby. There's a real royal, rural, right? No, he has that accent. I'm Mater, right? Like Toe Mater? I don't know if he actually talks like it, but that's where he's from. But that's what these towns are kind of very rural is where they'll end up. We'll be there next week. Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding countryside. And there they continued preaching the gospel. And so they enter into Iconium right away and they continue preaching the gospel that got them into trouble in Antioch. They are proclaiming the same message. The, the main idea of their sermon is going to be the same as, as usual. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so we know that message because we saw it last week, right? Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law. In other words, justification comes by faith in Christ. And justification is not just as if I never sinned, but just as if I never sinned and I did everything right. The righteousness of Christ is given to me as my own when God declares me righteous. This is really, really good news for bad people. So if you are if you're imperfect, if you are a, a poor and needy, weak and wounded sinner, and you recognize, I can't get this life right on my own, 
I can't find peace with God on my own. I, I need a Savior. This is great news. You know, the Savior's come. Hey, this is great. I can put my faith in Him. I can be saved. This is wonderful. But this is bad news. This is bad news if you're a good person. Because immediately, you look at it as something you don't really need. When I was in college, we had a student center called the Mountain Layer at, at the great West Virginia University. If you're ever there, check out the Mountain Layer. Bowling alleys, there's a Chick-fil-A in there. It's awesome. Anyhow, you would walk out, and they had what we called the free speech area. There's this big kind of open, there's a little street there and like bricks and stuff, and people would just set up shop, sororities, fraternities, various groups on campus, and when you walked out, you would be assaulted with literature that you did not want, right? They have fly, all kinds of flyers. Come to our event tonight, here, take this. And like, I, I got more kind of jaded as life went on in college, and I would just be like, nah. Or like, just not even pay attention and just keep walking, right? But initially, like, you take the flyer and then you crumble it up and like, throw it away in their eyesight to let them know that you, you just didn't want it, didn't need it. That's kind of how, if you're a good person and somebody tells you the gospel, you're like, I don't need that. Not, not important. I've got everything I need. I'm pretty comfortable in my life. Like, I like my job. I have a, a good family. I pay my taxes. My house is good. I got, I got internet and TV. Things are good. I don't, I'm fine, thank you, without this, this Jesus. You've got to understand, the gospel is an assault. It is a threat to the self-rule of the good person. It undermines the self-righteousness of the good person. Because when you're saying, I don't need Jesus, I'm, I'm quite a good person, I'm okay, I'm happy with my life without Jesus, what you are saying is, I've got this. Me running my own life as if I were God is working for me. I don't need a savior. In order to believe the gospel, we have to confess I've got it wrong. I'm sorry. I, I need you to be my king, Jesus. That's, that's a hard, hard confession to make because we are prideful and self-righteous people. Right? That, that kind of confession gets stuck in our throat like the words, I'm sorry. Why is it so hard to say I'm sorry? I see it with my kids all the time and even myself. I'm clearly wrong. It comes time to apologize and you're like, I'm sorry. <sighs> sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Or maybe uh, for you, it's the words, I'm wrong. I rarely have to say those ones. <sighs> this week I did, though. This week I did. Uh, Chelsea discovered we were pregnant with a boy. I thought it was a girl, and so I had to just, I'm wrong. You were right. That's much more fun to be right. I have a song that goes with that one. I was right. I was right. Chelsea loves it. Kids love it. It's hard to say, I'm wrong. It's hard to receive the gift of the gospel if you don't like what the gift is. I'm going to have to retire this illustration soon, but I just think it works so well. It'd be like on your birthday, unwrapping a gift, being excited to get a gift, and it's a dieting book. And then the next gift comes, and you're unwrapping it, and it's a stick of deodorant. And then the next one comes, and you open it, and it's a toothbrush. And you're like, wait a minute. You're saying, I'm out of shape, I've got bad breath, and I stink. I don't want these gifts. See, to accept the gift of the gospel is to admit something about yourself. It's to admit, I am inadequate. It's to admit, I need 
the real God. That's really, really hard. We won't accept that. We won't make that kind of confession unless God does a miraculous work in us. Because, friends, we love our sin. We love it. We're slaves to it. We're caught in a bad romance with our sin. It overpromises and underdelivers time after time after time and time after time after time. We continue to set our affections on our money, on our entertainment, on our spouse, on our children, on controlling our situation, on getting enough power. And time after time after time, we're let down. Because those things, while they are good things, they are not meant to be God. They're not meant to be God replacements. You see, everybody lives for something. And what you are living for is your God. And then, you know, here comes this message. You have to change what you're living for and begin living for the true God of the universe rather than yourself and your desires. Apart from a work of grace, we tell God that he will have to pry our idols from our cold, dead hands. That's precisely what he does in salvation. But because that's our declaration, we can see the hardness of our hearts in the hardness of the hearts here in Iconium. Look at verse 3. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. And so you've got God testifying, confirming Paul and Barnabas' message of salvation by allowing them to do signs and wonders. Like, all right, that guy can't walk, he can walk now. That guy can't see, he can see now. You know, whatever. Sick, lame, bring him, we'll heal him. Our message is true. You see, these miracles are serving our message. And you see in verse 4, not everyone believes but the people of the city were divided. What's there to be divided about? These guys are healing. They're preaching a message of salvation. The people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. They adorned the gospel with signs and wonders, and yet it's still not believed. We have a similar situation. We are to preach the gospel, and we are to adorn it with our good works so that people might go, this is really good news. Look at these good lives. Or to adorn the gospel like a wedding dress adorns a beautiful bride. Or like prongs on a ring hold up the diamond so that everybody can see it's a sparkling beauty. That's what our lives are supposed to be like. Titus tells us about this in chapter 2. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in the faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works, with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. 
Slaves are to submit to their masters and everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You see, our good works confirm the good news in the same way that the signs and wonders of Paul and Barnabas confirmed the good news in their time. And yet, despite all the faithful living we might do, despite all the faithful loving we might do, we love one another perfectly, gather together each week, could love our neighbors perfectly. Despite all of that, good works are never going to cause anybody to be born again. Our adorning of the gospel will not give anyone faith. Only God can do that. It takes a miracle. And praise God, he, he gives that miracle. He gives it through the word proclaimed. And this word proclaimed is, is divisive because it's not loved by everyone. It's, it's rejected by many. You see that the city is divided. And this, this shouldn't surprise us when, when the gospel is divided. I think sometimes we have this idea that if we could just preach the gospel to everybody like in a really concise and persuasive way, that everybody would just believe it and get along. But the reality is, is that it's not true. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 12, 49 through 53. I came to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already set ablaze. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how it consumes me until it is finished. He's referring to his death on the cross there. And then here's the, here's the part I want you to hear. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What he's saying is, I am going to cause rifts and rows. Rows is a word I learned this week. It's British for like a fight. It's awesome. Rifts and rows. Like Jesus is, is polarizing. What he's saying is, is like, I'm not going to be the topic of polite discussion. You might be better off talking about politics than me. You might have a better chance of getting along. He's divisive. And, and what I want you to hear here, hear here, is when someone has a bad reaction to the gospel, it doesn't mean that you've shared it wrongly. Right? It can actually mean that you've shared it rightly. I think sometimes we think like, hey, if I just get in there and share, it's going to be all good. I'm going to be accepted. That's not true. People do not like being told that everything they believe is wrong. 
that they've been worshiping false gods and they need to repent and turn and worship the one true God. A little earth-shaking. So don't beat yourself up if you have an encounter with someone and they come away rejecting you. Once more, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus will cause division. Now, don't get me wrong here. This is not a license to go out and be divisive or to be a jerk, right? Don't need any more of those running around. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. Right? Bless those who curse, persecute you, who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And so we are to be brave in our proclamation of the gospel. We are to be kind in our proclamation of the gospel. Loving those with whom we are sharing. Praying that they will repent and rejoice in the life they can have in Jesus. So do not be discouraged when you share the gospel and you are rejected. Indeed, as you share the gospel, you will find that there will be both converts and there will be conflict. It means you're doing it right. Bad reaction doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. In fact, it can be an indication that you are sharing faithfully because the real Jesus can be divisive. We see that he's divisive here in this town as believing Jews stir the proverbial pot against Paul and Barnabas. Look back at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Double, double boil in trouble, right? They don't like this message, and so they poison or make people to think poorly about Paul and Barnabas. They slander them. They stir the people up in anger against them. This this isn't new either. Slander somebody that you disagree with, right? That's not gone anywhere. But it does remind me of um, the crowds being stirred up against Stephen when he died earlier in Acts. And perhaps more poignantly, when the Pharisees stirred up the crowds against Jesus. Do you remember that scene? There's Barabbas here. He's an insurrectionist and a murderer. And Pilate's like, well, I've beaten Jesus. He's really innocent, and so my hope is to let him go free. And so it's like my tradition to give you guys somebody that's a criminal, and they just get off scot-free. You have to, like, pardon them. So here's Jesus, innocent lamb of God, calls himself your Messiah, or Barabbas, the murderer. He's pretty vile. And the the chief priests and the scribes, they, they stir up the crowd so that everybody yells out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And they yell out to crucify Jesus. And that's that wonderful picture of salvation of Jesus taking our place because we are vile like Barabbas. We have been in rebellion against God like Barabbas. And Christ, loving us, has taken our place and died for us, for our sin. So, he's so good. Just as they stirred up crowds, were stirred up against Jesus, so too crowds are stirred up, poisoned against Paul and Barnabas as they are slandered. There's no shortage of those who would poison the well of living water. I think a really good example of this came uh, to us in the the New York Post, I believe. No, it's not the Post. The New Yorker. There it is, I think. 
one of those New York newspapers anyhow. I have it cited if you're really interested. Uh, and an author titled their piece, uh, The Creepy Infiltration of Chick-fil-A. I'm, I'm messing up the title now. Creepy Infil- Infiltration of Chick-fil-A into New York City. Let me, let me read to you some of what they wrote about this Chick-fil-A was going to open a store in New York City. New York has taken to Chick-fil-A. One of the Manhattan locations estimates, estimates that it sells a sandwich every six seconds. And the company has announced plans to open as many as a dozen more storefronts in the city. And yet the brand's arrival here feels like an infiltration, in no part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism. Its headquarters in Atlanta are adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing a disciple's feet. Its stores close on Sundays. I noticed the word community scattered everywhere in the Fulton Street restaurant. A shelf of children's books bears a plaque testifying our love for this local community. The tables are made of reclaimed wood, which creates, according to Chick-fil-A, an inviting space to build community. A blackboard with the header, Our Community, displays a chalk drawing of the city skyline. Outside, you can glimpse an earlier iteration of that skyline on the building, which, with two small twin towers, gives a subtle impression that they are still there. Showing their, showing their shadows. This emphasis on community, especially in the misguided nod to 9-11, suggests an ulterior motive. The restaurant's corporate purpose still begins with the words to glorify God, and that proselytism thrums below the surface of the Fulton Street restaurant, which has the airsats homespun ambiance of a megachurch. The article continues to show the author's disdain for Chick-fil-A's arrival in New York City. And you would think that Chick-fil-A were a church moving in with the primary agenda of evangelizing New York City. Nah, like their goal is to sell chicken sandwiches. But their association with Jesus is enough to earn them the scorn of this author and many others in New York City. Simply because they have in their mission statement that they want to glorify Jesus. God. And you see this kind of poisoning of the well of Christianity from culture outside of us in a number of ways, not just in this magazine, but I mean, just turn on TV, right? If a pastor shows up in a whodunit kind of thing, I love procedurals, but immediately if he shows up, I know that he did it, right? He's the bad guy. Or if you find Christians on a TV show or in a movie, they're always they're just the worst, right? They're, they're unintelligent, They stumble over themselves, they're rude, they're the most judgmental and the least loving. No idea about what grace is. That's how culture poisoned the well, but as I thought about this, I thought, how do we poison the well of our own ministry? And I think it is this. It's when we live lives that are inconsistent with the message and the Christ that we proclaim. We poison the well through hypocrisy. And I'm not, this isn't a call to, to like beat yourself up. We're, we're sinners, we're going to sin. But you, I think you know there's a difference between hypocrisy and struggling to live a holy life. Like you, know, you know the difference. Too often the church proves the world's caricatures right and poisons its witness by gossiping about one another, turning on one another, mistreating others in our community, caring little about those outside of our walls. 
Friends, the elixir to this poison is Christ-like living. It is the pursuit of holiness. And it's, it's living out the truth of the gospel. So that when I do fail, I don't go, oh, man, I really should have tried harder and try to paper over my sin. But instead I go, praise God, I have a Savior who loves me and forgives me of my sin. Indeed, I am not perfect. I need grace just as much today as I did the first day I proclaimed Christ as my Savior. I need him. I've received grace and I keep needing grace day after day, sin after sin. You can have this kind of forgiveness and love that never quits and never gives up on you. You can have it too. This is why Jesus died. Let us live lives that serve as the antidote to those who would poison others against the good news of Christ crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. I also love that in response to this poisoning, you, you expect them to like just hightail it out of there. It says this counter to you, like, look, look at verses 2 and 3. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they left. That's not what we find. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. Like, this is awesome. Paul and Barnabas said, oh, they're talking bad about us. Things are not going that great. And so we're going to stay here. Love the, the grit that they show. They are determined to persevere in the mission that God has called them to. They aren't just there for a night. They're worried about this church. They want it to be planted. They want it to thrive and be healthy. We see that they're successful later on. Verses 21 through 23, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They are about the long-term success of the gospel in these cities. And so they stay, quote, a long time to train up leaders to make disciples, to establish elders. They, they care about this church. They care about the mission of God. And so they aren't going to be chased off right away on a whim. It's like true grace-given grit. We could use a little more grit in the church, a little more commitment to stay put and love the local church well, even when it disappoints us. A little bit more grit to stay in the communities God has placed us in and love them well, even when it's hard. There's a time to remain where God has put us. And there's a time to relocate. There's a time to relocate. There's a time to show grit. And there is also a time to go. Look at verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Laconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. And so they've already been there a long time, and I think that they use this plot to stone them as just one data point as they consider what their next move should be. Certainly they prayed about it. Certainly they prayed with the church about it. Is it time for us to move on? And they came up with the answer that, yes, it's prudent for us to go to the next town at this point. 
There's a time to stay and a time to go. And it takes wisdom and dependence on God to discern which it is. And at this point, they move on. But what I want you to see and recognize is that they are willing to suffer, but they are not seeking out suffering. And I think that should be the posture of all of us. Willing to suffer for the gospel, but not seeking it out. They're going to follow Jesus right into the next bit of trouble. This mater town, Lystra, is going to lift them up as gods and try to worship them. And eventually, Paul's going to end up stoned. It really, the script really gets flipped on him. They're moving from one trouble into the next bit of trouble. Willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads with bravery. Are you willing to follow Jesus into the tiniest bit of trouble? Is Jesus able to upset your life and your schedule, even in minor ways, so that you might be more faithful to him? Those who follow Jesus will face troubles. We will. There's no way around it. Jesus has said in John 16, you will have trouble in this world, hardship, difficulty, trials, suffering. But take heart, be of good cheer, lift up your chin, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Indeed, trouble comes from following Jesus in the short term. In the short term, we have a cross for our backs. But in the long term, Christ has overcome the world. In the long term, we get crowns for our heads. Jesus is always worth it. We want to follow him into trouble. We want to be brave as we proclaim him as Lord over all. Our faithfulness is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Sorrow may come for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Your work is not in vain. Paul and Barnabas' work was not in vain. In the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. Messengers will come and go, but the message of the good news of the gospel goes forward. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. He's ruling and reigning, and he's going to come and reclaim this earth as his own in its entirety. He is going to exercise his godness. His side is the side of victory. Whose side are we on? Friends, it's better to be in trouble with Jesus than out of trouble without Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your commands. For by them we find ourselves becoming in practice what you've declared us in Christ, which is holy. By your commands, we find that as we become holier, we become happier. 
thank you for this fellowship you've called us to, that we might encourage one another to pursue you. God, you are the fountainhead of all that is good. Help us to quench our thirst often this week by returning to your word, by seeking you in prayer, by serving one another in our neighbors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.